Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Introspective. So we have a very exciting episode today. So I'm Claire. I'm joined by my co-host, Sabrina. Sounds hey. like quick hello. <laughs> and today we have a guest who has graced us with her presence despite her very hectic schedule. We have Dr. Maisha Wester, who is a global professor and she's teaching at the University of Sheffield. So welcome, Maisha. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very excited to be here. Yay. Right. I mean, honestly, just as first off, there are so many questions we could have asked you, but we thought it would be really interesting to just get to know you uh, more and have our listeners get to know you as well. So what are some defining moments for you growing up? I mean, you have so many achievements, you're a professor. So we were just curious about that. Um, defining moments. I think first one would have to be, well, actually it's one of my early memories, right? It was um, my mom doing my hair while I was reading a Allan Poe, The Raven, to her. <laughs> and I <Yeah>. through it. <laughs> And then um, I think the next one would have to be the moment I realized that a lot of the gothicists and horror writers I've been reading were super racist. And super <laughs> so, yeah, I have graduate school to thank for that. I remember the seminar I was sitting in and my professor pointing out that Edgar Allan Poe was a pro-slavery advocate. And I couldn't believe it. Right. She's like, no, go look at Southern Literary Messenger, the um, newspaper he edited. And sure enough, there's a lot of really problematic stuff and it just made me reflect back on you know, what I'd always been reading of Poe right? and once you see it you can't unsee it and I felt super betrayed um, when angry that felt like surely I'm not the only person of color who loves gothic literature and horror and is really angry that the greats are horrible and think that we're lesser and barely human and so the next moment would be realizing that there is such a thing as African-American Gothic and now Black Diasporic Gothic. And I actually remember that as well. I was at the hairdresser and I was reading reading Beloved and my beautician said to me, you know, how can you stand to read that? And I was like, well, you know, and I had been, I had read Beloved a couple of times before in undergrad as well as uh, my master's, which is my PhD. And I said, well, you know, I'm Morrison. I started in on the, well, I know Morrison is complicated. She said, no, 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 no. It's so horrifying. When I saw the movie, I thought those evil white folk were going to reach through the TV and get me. And that's when I realized, like, that's right. This is a ghost story and this is a horror novel. And I'm off. So that was one of those really foundational moments. Because, I mean, I loved Morrison. She was someone, I, in fact, beloved, I was obsessed with unraveling for a good decade. Um, and so that moment and realized that is actually a gothic text as well just gave me the encouragement I need needed, right? That sense that there are African-American gothic writers out there. It's just that quite often they're misrecognized. So yeah, those were some of my real foundational moments. And of course, you know, finally getting the degree. I say that like it was nothing. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I, I can imagine how, well, to be honest, like traumatic it is to have something that you absolutely love and to just be forced to look at it with a set of new eyes. Like, oh, OK, so this guy is actually horrible and racist. Great. Ugh. But you're doing it. You're turning it around. You're shifting the narrative, which we are so inspired and impressed by because we know it's not it must not be easy emotionally and mentally. Yeah, well, and I shouldn't say I mean, it's really the writers that are shifting 
narrative. I'm just reporting on what they're doing. Like, hey, look, pay attention because there's really smart, important, highly critical, theoretical work being done in Black fiction that's speaking back to this and making a place, insisting on a place for people of color and really insisting on that we consider what is monstrosity? What is horror, right? Is it the fact that there are people of different colors wandering around the world or is it how they're treated? Call a spade a spade. First of all, I'm so happy that you've read Beloved. My uncle recommended it to me years ago and it's one of those books that uh, my friendship circle that read a lot of books at the time when I was at uni, I just knew they wouldn't have read the book and I knew it was a book that they wouldn't approach. And some people I've spoke to about Beloved, they're like, oh, you you actually read it. They think that the book is like really heavy to read. I loved it. I haven't read um, many of Toni Morrison's books and it's just, it's just amazing. Really gets you to kind of think about what a mother was going through at that time, how she had to react. They're like the kind of that gothic, scary side to it. I think it's done to make it a bit more lighthearted because if you really think about the nitty gritty stuff, it's actually brutal. It's a brutal story. And when you really think about the characters that they mentioned that are no longer there, it gets you to think, okay, what happened? But going back to what you said, like you're reading kind of like your favorite stories and you're finding that out, that out about the authors. How did that change your approach to literature, like approaching white, white authors? Yeah, so what it's done is made me adamant to call this out to other people. Because the thing is, is when you're just passively ex- in, imbibing this stuff and not paying attention to the messaging and ideologies about race and ethnic difference or sexual difference, gender difference, because, you know, when we talk about some of these authors, there's also they're also super misogynistic as well. You just start to accept it without thinking about it so that when you encounter these similar narratives in the real world, you're less likely to resist because you've already been teaching yourself, being led to accept this as normal, as okay. Right? Like, oh, well, yes, of course these people of color are monstrous. They're monsters in this novel, this novel, this movie, this movie. Of course women are hypersexual threats that need to be contained. Didn't you see Catwoman? Right? Didn't you see uh, that Catwoman? The cat people, right? Of course we need to be controlled about queer bodies. Haven't you seen pretty much every slasher film? It's important, you know, to me to, I mean, I keep reading it. In fact, I just left a seminar where I was lecturing on Matthew Monk Lewis's The Isle of Devils and Florence Marriott's Love the Vampire, which are both two really great texts in terms of their story they're wild they're super racist and crazy like it, what you see in Isle of Devils is an early illustration of the black man as supernatural rapist myth what you see in Blood of the Vampire is this anxiety about racial and cultural mixing and contamination that if you let if you start to racially mix populations and let those mixed progeny into the nation they're going to literally suck the nation dry. And it's, it's just like, okay, so y'all caught this. This is, this is fun reading, right? You and the students all agree that this is really enjoyable reading. It's like, okay, now we need to pay attention to how messed up this is. Because there are a lot of ways in which our contemporary gothic literature and horror 
literature is capable and sometimes does the same trick, right? Like, oh, this is really pleasurable. Hey, wait a second. Let me go back to that. The best example I can give for this is a fairly recent one. It's a Stephen King novel that won an award. It, Bag of Bones, right? Came out in the early aughts. Uh, they did a made-for-TV movie in 2010. And I remember watching it one Christmas. I had it playing in the background as just noise. And then I realized that the Black woman in the story who had been violently raped, gang-raped by a group of white men who watched her daughter be drowned to death as the daughter was watching her mother be raped, that she becomes the villain of the whole story. And it's like, really? It's 2010. We're in the 21st century. How are we still doing this? Stephen King, I'ma need you. Go back and rethink some of your stuff. But he's not the last one to do this, right? And that's the horrifying part. And so in teaching the literature, I'm also teaching the films. I, I also work in horror film studies. They go hand in hand and they do the same things. And if we're not careful, we learn to just passively accept these ideologies about not just the inferiority of minority populations, but the monstrosity of it, of them, and the notion that they deserve to be brutalized, slaughters. On film now, we see, right? In real life, on film. I like reading books and trying to work out the race of the characters, especially when they're trying to describe a Black person. Okay, I know you're trying to describe Black people, but let's see how you go about it. And there's just, it's not difficult to describe us, but I just feel like it comes across so difficult in literature. And the way that it's hard to describe, but um, I was reading a book and the author described, I knew it was a Black girl because she said she got nappy hair. And I just thought, what would the race of they refer to people as having nappy hair. You describe everything fine with this character. Yeah. But even her skin tone, I thought I didn't feel offended the way they described her skin tone or anything. But you said she had nappy hair. Why couldn't you just say that she had thick curly hair? Exactly. Why, why couldn't you just do that? And I just feel like there's certain ways that they just have to degrade us in some shape or form. And um, speaking of like the horror genre, it's like a running joke that in horror films, the black person always dies first. Always. Oh. And it, you know, when you just watch horror films and you're like, they're going to die first or you're just counting down how long into the film are they gonna they're they gonna die and it's always some dramatic death or something like that and it's just like if we really think about the situation would it really go down like that and it's yeah I think it's interesting to see the ways that we're portrayed through literature and when you're reading you always stop and think because you have to picture it in your mind and it's like you really sat there and painted this image of a black woman and her child going through that and you wrote it down and it was it was fine I'm always intrigued at how people have the stomach to actually create something out of well fiction and yeah actually you said a few things and one I'll note is I love Jordan Peele because he's a guy he's a, also a lover of gothic fiction and horror film and he's the one that got really upset with the black folk always die first and so that's what he was doing when we get out right he was like well look I'm gonna have a black character who actually recognizes the danger and it's like nah nah man I'm gonna try and live <laughs> I'm going to go the other way. But he's also performing the reality of America, which is as a black person, there's a reason we die first in the film. And that's because we are always and already exposed to social death. We've already been caught and damned to destruction, right, by our society. So that his next film, I think that it's, he's released a spoiler cover for it. And it's just called Nope. Right? <laughs> and I can see, like, you can't help but laugh. It's like, yeah, I know. <laughs> 
time in which you do the, there's rare occasions in early film. Well, I say early 1960s film. <laughs> you do have black characters that survive. And so the epitome of this is Night of the Living Dead. And that one got so much outrage because Ben was the last one to die in that film, the black character, right? He outlives all of the white folk only to be killed by a white posse. Not zombies, just by gun-toting white Americans, right? And Romero was saying so much about the positionality of African-American with that film, you know? And in terms of just how I do it, you know what? It's, while they may think that about us, I know better. I know better about me. I know better about my family. I know better about people of color around the U.S. Be it black, brown, it doesn't matter, right? Latino, Asian, I know better. So if anything, I read this and I laugh. It's like, yes. <laughs> Don't even know, right? <laughs> if we decided to up and leave all at once, this country would be a slap mess without us. So, uh, yeah. But <laughs> you need to check yourself. I, I can't tell you how many times, like, I stop watching a film. So I was like, really? The black person died first, or like the Asian bestie died first? Like, come on. I, I can't, like, think of an example off the top of my head. You know, shows where there is an Asian lead or a strong black hero that lasts, it gets like negative reviews. It's not quote unquote realistic. And I'm like, but you know what? The ones doing the critiquing are white. So of course they're going to say it's unrealistic. So it's, I think this conversation is really affirming how the content creators and the content controllers just need to be decolonized, just like this vicious cycle on Amazon Prime. It's called Them. I haven't finished <laughs> watching it. I feel like that's kind of like becoming the new way of telling trauma or portraying trauma. I feel like it, we've gone the comedy route yeah it's kind of hit and miss with, with the comedy we've gone there let's be as true to true to life as possible and everyone realized that's probably a bit too hard especially when some people feel it and some people just laugh at it when it's supposed to be really serious whereas I feel like the gothic being on things gets you to think about it from a different angle so I need to finish them the point that you mentioned earlier Claire about the, the outrage around like if it's like a person of color that actually survives until the end if it was to be realistic we would would survive to the end because we navigate through life. We navigate life with fear. We have to be scared. When we go to into interviews, we have to be scared on how we go, how they portray us. If we go in outside or going into the wrong neighborhoods, we have to be scared at how we're being portrayed. Prime example is with the East Asian community and what's happened with COVID. The fear that's been instilled just because somebody wants to label something as being the China virus and because people don't know how to identify another person of color. Everybody that's East Asian is Chinese. We have to navigate life through fear. So when it comes to these horror films, of course, we should be the ones that should survive at the end because we have natural fear built into us. So, yeah, we're not going to go into the basement because we know dodgy stuff's going to go down the basement. If we're hearing a sound, we're not going to check on the sound by ourselves. We're going to round up everybody that we can, turn on every single light that we can, make every piece of noise that we can because of the fear. So when we die first, it's very unrealistic just because of the way we naturally navigate life we're on the edge and with fear which is sad when you really boil it down to it which is why I do feel like horror films are unrealistic when we die first yeah well and I'm so glad to hear you mention them 
right. I really loved that series all but episode nine, that second to last episode. They could have done without that. But because it, it makes the violence, the racial violence, an exceptional event instead of making it an all American event. And that's the problem for me. Right. They're like semi spoiler, unless you decide to skip the episode, which I recommend <laughs> the violence, the product of this crazy cult instead of just saying, well, no, this is an American story is already there. Right. But the thing about them, which is interesting, especially when you juxtapose it to Bag of Bones is, you know, when them came out, there were all these outcries about, well, this is black trauma porn. We're exploiting black pain. It's like, but no, because y'all been doing this for a while. Did you or did you not watch these other films? Is it because we're protesting what has been done to us? Is it because we're rejecting the ideas of blackness that have been imposed upon us, right? So I love, you know, what they call the tap dance man in that series because he's such an embodiment of how it feels to encounter blackface. You look at him and it's just, oh my God, you are a point of horror. You are so grotesque. The way you contort your face, these super black eyes, this is all wrong, right? This is horror, not something to be laughed at. But the other reason I think we've now moved to the gothic and to horror is like you're saying, Brie, it's just, you know, when you have a population that can watch and hear about in detail violence done to Black folk, repeated time and time again without flinching, where they can watch, you know, clips of, of people of color being choked and beaten to death and not respond with abject terror, then where do you go? It's like, well, we presented the reality to you and y'all are not understanding the pain here. Horror, right? Because in part, what is happening, our creators are turning to the very lexicon which has made the population able to stomach those encounters, those images and narratives and to say, well, this is not terror. This is the monster getting his due. They're turning back to that lexicon and using it to try and reprogram the population's reaction. It's really savvy. And the best example I can give of this is the episode of Lovecraft Country where uh, Emmett Till, featured Emmett Till's death, right? Where you don't for once, for once, you don't have a profound focus on the spectacle of Till's brutalized body. We never see his body. We don't hear a narrative of what happened to him. What we do get is that violence reperformed on a white female body, right? To have the show say, look here, this is what happened is absolutely disgusting, outrageous, and a point of horror. And we know you'll get it if it's a white woman that has to endure it. It's savvy. But that's what I think Black horror in particular is trying to do right now. Yeah, because horror is a general, as a genre in general. It puts you on edge. It makes you feel uncomfortable. That's the whole point of it, to make you feel uncomfortable. So when you apply the kind of race narrative to it, yeah, it's going to make you feel uncomfortable. And I feel like it does the job that it needs to that it needs to do. But yeah, I could talk about this for ages. Tell us about cultural barriers that, you're navig- that you've had to navigate moving from the US to the UK. Have you encountered 
related imposter syndrome? Yeah, so imposter syndrome is actually a really important one, right? It's something that that a lot of us grapple with. I, in fact, I actually can't think of a single person of color that I've spoken with at length that hasn't had to navigate this, feeling like they have to prove themselves. And sure enough, when the move was actually made more difficult on the U.S. side rather than on the U.K. side. Now, mind you, of course, moving in the middle of a pandemic wasn't fun, but that's just how desperate my husband and I were to get out of the Midwest where we were. We were in Indiana, which, you know, as much as Bloomington likes to think of itself as a liberal bastion of Indiana, that's because it's in a super red, super racist state. <laughs> so by comparison, yeah, Bloomington, super liberal. But when I, you know, informed my, my college that I had received this grant, my chair's first reaction was, oh, so are you a fellow of the British Academy now? Have you been accepted into this really prestigious program? And I had to say, oh, no, I don't think I'm automatically a fellow, but I did win this grant. Oh, but you're not a fellow. Like, really? Really? In the arts and humanities in the States, we do not win grants like this. And that's what you come with? That I'm not a fellow of the British. In other words, I'm still not fully worthy. Okay. And that, I have to admit, that has an impact on me, right? And it's one of the reasons I think that plus just the general outrage at the fact that we keep stupidly repeating history. It's it's also behind what motivates me to work so much harder to keep busy, to be steady running. Because in the back of my mind, there's still that echo of, yeah, but you're not a fellow. So never mind that I've already won a Fulbright award here, right? It was something that was already highly competitive. And then there was an initial, you know, I sense a threat to my position, right? Where they didn't initially wanted to let me have the four-year leave because this is really unusual. And so it was, but is it really worth it for you, right? Is it, I don't know if it's worth our spending the money to let you go on leave for four years and to have to replace you with a temp for four years. We have to have a guarantee that you'll return. And you know you can do all of this work here, right? You don't really, you, you if anything you can do there, as little as you could do, you could do it here, right? And it was just that kind of attitude. You really, you're telling me that I'm not worthy of this grant. I'm not going to accomplish as much. And in my time for this, to accept this award, is it worth your money? Mind you, I'm not even asking my home university for any funding on this. If anything, I don't think they're saving money because they're not paying my salary. But that sense of, but is it worth the trouble, right, of letting you leave for four years was really upsetting. And it again, just kind of made me balk, right? Like, well, am I actually worthy of this, right? And it did make me feel some kind of way, right? But at the same time, you know, I see how in so many of the other discussions of, you know, literature or other projects, right, there's not the same willingness to confront the profound xenophobia, racism that seems to be dominating the globe right now, right? At least that wasn't, you know, that wasn't in my class for the global professorship, 
Right. Hopefully, I haven't looked at the more recent global professorship, but hopefully we'll see more, more inspection of racial and like international oppression, right? especially given some of the legislation that's coming out now. I still have to fight back against imposter syndrome. I keep hearing little voices all the time that just in little questions. For instance, I was at Cambridge last week giving a guest lecture. And normally, again, I don't make much of the title, but they gave me a title. They only listed me as a visiting lecturer. It's like, but if you're going to give me a title, then why not go with the full one? Why just drop me down to a visiting lecturer like I'm just here for a semester? Like I didn't do the hard work and I'm not doing truly worthwhile research. So yeah, it's it's there's so many subtle little comments and behaviors that just etch away. But at the end of the day, instead of letting it cower me, I just use it to motivate me to do more work and to call out the stupidness. So hopefully a future generation won't still have to be battling this. Hopefully. I feel like there's just so much, so much to unpick in so little time. I just can't imagine what it would have felt like being in that position, going to your employers like, I've got this. Look, look how amazing this is. And I got this. And that's your reaction to it. No, you've worked so hard. You deserve it. We can see all the hard work that you've put in. We're sorry to see you go, but this is going to be a big step for you. How are we going to replace you? Can't you do everything here? If I could do everything here, then this opportunity would have arose for me here. But the opportunity didn't appear for me here. Someone else saw my value. You never know what you've got until it's gone. Oh, how are we going to find someone to replace your work ethic? Because we were exploiting you. And you were doing so much for us. And now you're going to go, how are we going to get somebody else to fill, to fill the boots? That's the way the fear comes in. It's not that you, it, it's the, the fear of losing what you bring to them. Yeah. And they want you to, to, oh, people like that just, <laughs> they're getting angry like, oh, yeah. who are they? <laughs> I'll go to America and I'll fight them for you. <laughs> you do. We all know, well, I've always known that we've been unwanted. It's just now what this pandemic has highlighted is that they're not afraid to tell you to your face or to make it known that you're not wanted and I feel like as we're progressing on there's more and more coming up in like the media and like in policies and in laws and things where they're making it apparent you're not wanted and to show you're not wanted we're going to write it out for you whether it's in the newspaper whether it's on social media whether we're going to verbally say it on TV should have not not being wanted is kind of coming through more and what you were saying that like the whole imposter syndrome of you having the voice in your head questioning questioning you. It reminded me of when I went to like the Cotswolds with uh, my cousin in the Cotswolds. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's just a posh area. That's never been part of my lifestyle. So I've just, when I got introduced to it and I kind of lost interest getting to know what it was because I just thought, oh, this is going to be full of white people. And that's what my mind told me. When I went to the Cotswolds and we stayed at one of the hotels, we were going for a walk and I was just thinking, when I'm surrounded by a lot of white people, I've become really self-conscious and I feel like I'm being looked at. I feel like I don't belong. And that just, as soon as I, as soon as I acknowledge that I'm the minority in a certain situation, I feel like I have a bit of anxiety about being in that space. And when we're in the Cotswolds and we're going for a war, I just thought, oh, there's, look at us, there's four of us, four black people. We're not dressed 
or hiking. I said to my cousin, oh, look at us. They're going to think, what are, what are black people doing in a place like this? And my cousin turned around and says, black people can do nice things too. Exactly. And that's what he said. He says, why Why is it we can't, it's not promoted or it's not shown that we can do th- these things, that we can go on hikes, that we can, that we can swim, that we can go kayaking and things like that. Why can't we get these top positions? Why can't we win awards that no one else has won before? Like, why can't we do it? Like, who said, where is it written that we're not allowed to do these things? And why do we feel like we don't deserve when we do get those things and it's just sad that's such a big achievement and they just have to belittle it even down to your fault your title if it was somebody else they would have rolled the imaginary confetti so and so this is what they've achieved they'll even roll off the different awards that they've got you know unnecessary information about that person they'll throw it all out there but they've seen your full title and just a guest lecturer a guest is someone that's there for a moment I'm not here for a moment I'm here for four years and I'm here to do something and this is what you shortened me down to yeah I could I could go on a rant for ages <laughs> because yeah. knows I could go on a rant for ages I'll say about you know because I, I definitely get that sense of being spectacle right I've gotten in Indiana I definitely get in Cambridge and one of the ways I've negotiated it is just I'm not trying to I'm not trying to be that other black girl that assimilates easily into it anymore right like look I'm never gonna fit and you know what if that's liberating because that means I'm not gonna try and speak in high jargon I'm not gonna try and speak with an effective accent I'm not gonna keep relaxing my hair I'm gonna go with dreadlocks and I'm gonna speak like a normal person so that everyone can understand me and I'm not going to try and pretend to be something other because no matter how much I pretend I'm never going to not be the spectacle right and so you know I love that your cousin was like you know what why can't black folk do nice things right and he's absolutely right and you, you know what if anything like when I went to Cambridge <laughs> It's it's just it's learning to see the narrative differently. And one of the things my husband and I were noting was like, "Wow, this is so not diverse. It's really boring. There's no ethnic food. Like this is really bland. I could get this anywhere. We can make this at home, right?" And it's just how we learn to what we learn to privilege, right? And we've been learned to privilege like the white space and to feel like we don't belong. Why not privilege the diverse space? It's so much more interesting, so much more exhilarating and vibrant. Right. So, no, I don't want to fit in at Cambridge. It's boring. I'm so glad you two finally met. And I can't wait to meet up in person and have a chat and have future episodes. But yeah, go ahead, Sabrina. When you said that we need occupied diverse spaces, this is probably one of my biggest frustrations. And Claire, you'll probably agree with me on this, is when there's so much content out there by people of colour and other people of colour don't tap into it. And it's just like quick to jump onto what's produced by Western society. So they're, they're, they don't control all of society as much as the media portrays that. There's other things that you can tap into. This is why we don't get the representation that we need in certain spaces because we don't support each other enough. And it's like, if we're not going to support each other, how do you expect them to support us? It's like when Parasite won, the just won everything and just did so well. Do you know when it takes such a big thing for something like, oh, okay, they can make films in, in Korea. It took Squid Games again for TV shows and even then, I feel like when you give so much choice of different languages, yeah, we want to open it up so people can ex- um, so it can be accessible. But I think a lot of comments I heard from people is, why do I want to read subtitles? Why do I want to read subtitles? Well, how do you think people that don't speak English consume our content, which dominates most of society? They read subtitles, so the least we can do is read subtitles. 
yeah, but I don't get the point. You do understand that the way that we talk and the way that certain, the tone of voice and everything, that contributes to how a message comes across. The moment you dub it in English, that message is lost. Mm. So yeah, I do think that we do need to just take a step back from those spaces from I don't want to say but white spaces and start occupying our own start looking into what is actually available in our own space and and big it up or else our voice is always going to be snuffed if we're not to try to color it out ourselves yeah. that was my little tangent no that's a that's an important point right because what you're talking about in some ways is kind of the internalized dynamics of oppression the ways in which even as we're crying and protesting against lack of representation and diversity that we don't pursue it ourselves because we've been taught to view any diverse content as lesser and not worth the time, right? And in terms of thinking about subtitles, is I mean, what that's saying to me is like, but English is supposed to be dominant around the world. So, you know, I've already been taught to embrace the dominance of English. Why should I then have to bother with reading? Can't they dub it or better yet speak in English so that it's more acceptable or accessible around the globe? Why do I have to bother reading? And so it's you're talking about how we also internalize a lot of these um, mechanisms and dynamics, right? And how we even use it against ourselves. Uh, I mean, if you think about how many people of color aren't familiar with the major films or literature of their own culture, right? Especially if you reside in a Western nation, right? I mean, that says so much about what we've been taught and to value and to privilege as worth our time, which means that we've been taught not to value ourselves right and it just it appears and manifests this less and manifests itself in our actual consumptive practices you know but i have a colleague i love her she's great she's back in the states she's like you know what i spent my high school and undergrad career reading novels by dead white men i'm not reading a single one of them anymore I'm reading only the novels, only the works of people of color, because that has been denied me in my education. Right? She looks at it, but I can't imagine how much work it took for her to get there to be like, you have robbed me of access to these rich work. I'm not reading no more of this other stuff. Like that was that's a major mind shift. It, it's a complicated existence, but I think it's one which we're being forced to work out. Right? Thanks to forerunners who are insisting that you know look, I'm doing some really fun stuff. I'm showing you some really interesting films. You're going to have to step out your comfort zone. You're going to have to read a subtitle. You're going to have to try to figure out or negotiate how Korean life and culture, political culture is different from British or American, right? You're going to have to familiarize yourself with a different way of being because you don't want to miss out on this new hot thing. And I think as well as that is familiarize yourself without being judgmental and comparing it to what you already know. Because what you already know is not the full truth. I can hold my hand up and say there's a lot that I really don't know. And I still find myself as much as I try to explore other like material and other cultures. If I'm tired and I'm not in the mood, I would default back to what is the easiest to consume to me. And that is what is produced by Western society. And that's just because of how I've been brought up. But completely close yourself off to everything else and not being willing to grow. Then you don't really have a sense of who you are. Like even I feel like I don't fully know who I am. Um, because I don't fully know my history um, and that's like a learning process that I've got got to go on so I feel like you, we do have to be open-minded but literally as open-minded as you can be there's a lot of things that the western society did not create that has just been taken from all over the world what you're consuming you're neglecting the origins and if anything it's kind of disrespectful that you can't even 
try to acknowledge the origins of where all of these things come from because nothing is nothing is original when it comes to western Western culture, which is why when Squid Games became blew up the way it did, it's because it it was original. Nothing like that had been done. They'd never seen anything like that. And the fact it was produced in a different country, it was a different language. Everything about it was just new, and that's what enticed people. But for them to continually be enticed by things like that and new, it's not going. It's not going to happen unless again we we sing and dance about it. But I'm gonna I'm gonna quiet and down. I kind of like <laughs> take this further. No, I mean you make such excellent points. You know, and it's, I think the thing, what shows like Squid Games are showing is that, look, you're missing out on a lot of stuff by being lazy. But at the same time, it connects even to the to political treatment of people of color and the ways, you know, you said, Sabrina, earlier, they're telling us in so many ways that they don't want us, that they don't belong here, right? Until they really need us. And so when you said that, I was thinking of the NHS, the moment in which the NHS was created. And it wasn't for the wind rush immigrants from Jamaica, the tons of Black nurses that came over to staff the NHS. Britain wouldn't have this wonderful social medical system, socialized medical system. That was a consequence of immigrant contribution and labor. And then to turn around and be like, all right, we're good. Uh, So where's your paperwork? You don't have it? I guess you better go back to Jamaica. It's like, what? Because it's now established? Again, we're at another crisis point thanks to Brexit. So in a couple of years, it's going to be like, so can you come back? Uh, We need you back. Thank you. We need more staff. And in a lot of ways, you know, this kind of behavior is so short-sighted. It's just focusing. It's lazy. It's focusing on the right now, not the long-range trajectory. Because all studies show that a diverse population and a population that welcomes immigrants tends to be far more productive and healthy rather than stagnant. But because that requires more work, it requires more work to try to integrate and educate the pre-existing society and requires more work. Finally, actually negotiate a diverse society. Oh, we don't want to. Why don't y'all go home? Never mind that in a few years, we're going to be in a dire economic state. Just dropping gems throughout this episode. On that note, I mean, we could speak to you for hours and hours and hours. We need to have you back. We need to meet you in person. Thank you so much for taking your valuable time out to chat with us. Thank you so much. And we can't wait to have you back on. I I have enjoyed this conversation so much. I can't wait to meet you all and get to chat more. Yeah, this has been so much fun.